This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Welcome again, listeners. This week we welcome back Cindy Lilburn, this term, time wearing a Heritage Society hat. So welcome back again. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. So Palmerston North 150 years ago began as a clearing called Te Papawea in the dense bush, so that's what I understand. So what can you tell us about this? Um, I th- think that people don't realise just how close the bush was. Um, as you look at the drawing that shows the, the limits of the clearing, um, one corner of that clearing was actually on the corner of Cook and Cuba Street, roughly where the showgrounds are now. And the other part was probably roughly along what we'd now call Park Road. And you've got to remember, this wasn't a gentle um, British <laughs> um, a forest where there's sort of mature trees, but reasonably sort of low sort of degree of bracken. And so you can sort of see in a British forests from sort of one corner to the other. This was dense, 30, 40 foot high, um, (laughs) five metre high trees entangled with all sorts of um, vines and and undergrowth. When you were standing in there, you you couldn't see out of the bush area to anywhere else, except for that one corner, which is the way in which people came into Palmerston North when they first settled it. And that's what's known as the Fitzroy Landing or the... um, which is the bottom of Fitzroy Street. Um, there was a beach there, and that was um, it had a, a sort of tongue of clear space running down to the river at that point. And so people, when they arrived on the canoes, um, which was the way they came up river, um, stepped off and walked walked into the clearing through this little tongue and into the fullness of this. Um, visually impeded world. <laughs> and I wonder whether they thought, oh, goodness, come to the back of beyond on earth if we come to. I guess I the woman would some like. people might have really, um, yes, been quite perturbed. So was it was it mainly men that came or, or were their whole families and things as well, of course, came? It would seem it was um, family, family groupings. Um, yes, and the... And the uh, um, Husbands or or whatever would would be sort of sawmillers and farmers and those kind of people. They were they were given designated plots of land and in most cases, um, they hoped to um, hoped to farm um, their patches. But um, one or two of the very earliest settlers, um, for instance, Peter Matson, whose house Totoranui. We hold it to Manawa, which is where I work when I'm not doing um, in my other capacity. Um, he was a sawmiller and he bought the entire block that went between what's now Main Street down to the river on the Fitzroy um, Street side um, where Memorial Park, Limbrook Street and the like is, is 
now. Right. And um, he bought that so he could mill it out. So it was still standing standing um, trees at that point. And the same was um, up in Terrace End as well. There are images showing Terrace End in the, 19, uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, where there was still enough standing timber that they could um, profitably run a sawmill. But I suspect most of the other people coming in, it was planned as an urban settlement. Uh, so I suspect a lot of the other people coming in were setting up businesses in the hopes that as the rest of the settlers came in and land was divvied up in places like Fokorongo, which um, happened fairly shortly afterwards for the Scandinavian settlers that were brought in, who were each given a 40-acre block. Um, they were hoping to benefit, obviously, from them um, needing supplies. <laughs> right, so so that it was quite clear then this, this was just a, um, or was that all forest that had to be cleared first? Yes, it had been the had been what had happened elsewhere in, in New Zealand. The the reason that Palmerston North was settled later than most others, and the same for over in parts of Hawke's Bay as well, was because it was so heavily forested. People picked those areas that were um not not deforested. <laughs> so we're talking Canterbury Plains, the uh-huh. Huratonga Plains, um and Rangitiki. Um you could stand there and you couldn't see forests, so it was um they knew that they were in for the long haul. So there was a large number of Scandinavian settlers that came sort of slightly south of Palmerston North. Uh, The Scandinavian settlers were invited in under the Vogel scheme to help settle some of these really hard, hard backcountry forested areas. So um, a grouping went to Manawatu and another grouping went to what was called the 70-mile bush at Tararua. in what's now called Norswood, Danny Verk, uh, Ekatahuna, um, Morrisville area, which was the, the term was correct, seventy miles from <laughs> <laughs> seventy miles from top to bottom, and pretty much twenty, thirty miles from each way. So um, they brought in the Scandinavians to Manawatu to um, work the Fokorongo area, was where their designated land, a little bit down beside Longburn as well. All right, due to the connection of the previous. Um, the major Scandinavian colonists there. Um, and at one point they made up about a third of Palmerston North's population uh, in the early, in the 1870s. Wow. So um, they were able to publish a newspaper. They did a couple of editions. Um, and I can imagine that out there on the street, as well as Māori being spoken um, and English, in its various Scottish, Irish, <laughs> etc., <laughs> versions, uh, there were um, a whole range of Scandinavian languages: Norwegian, Danish, and um, Swedish. Right. So, and and basically, well, some of them would have moved into the um, squ- or the uh, clearing as such, but or was they, that just yes, yeah. like everyone? They they tried their chances, decided which was going to be the best economically for them. Some of them started out on the other side and came across to Palmerston North area um, and vice versa. And some of them moved out and some of them stayed and became commercial. All oh, right, and went somewhere else or whatever. So that's quite interesting. So what were some of the first suburbs of the, um, we'll call it the clearing, Papua There was actually two hearts when it started out. Right. The, f- the f- first was the square, uh, and the second is Terrace End. Um, the 
perhaps one thing people don't realise unless you see it on a map is that the square was designed to be the centre but there's a one mile radius for the layout and one corner of that one mile direct from the square is Botanical Road. One mile in another direction is Tremaine Avenue, a.k.a. Boundary Road as it was known, and the other mile was Terrace End. Right. So, so yeah. literally, because I live, I live just past Botanical Road, <laughs> every day when I walk in, I know that I'm doing one mile's <laughs> worth of work. <laughs> Well, that's that's good to know. That <laughs> but Terrace End was the other was the other um, major settlement, and that was because they had immigration barracks there. All oh, right, okay. which were used by both the Scandinavian settlers, um, some of the other early settlers, and those coming to Palmerston North to go across to have a look at fielding, which was developed from eighteen seventy five onwards. So, were those run by the New Zealand government or the? Um Dominion by the New Zealand government, government. Dominion government or whatever it was called in those days because there's dominions and um, boroughs. And <laughs> At that point, probably um, when they say the New Zealand government, probably you'd say the provincial government. Right. <laughs> because at that point, I think we were still provide, um, sliced into provinces. Oh, right. Yes. So I can't remember. I can remember having them, but not when they went out. Oh, but. no, they went out well before both of our times. <laughs> but um, that's why, of course, we celebrate the Wellington anniversary weekend because we're technically in Wellington province. All oh, right. And tomorrow is the Canterbury one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, okay, so we've talked about the suburbs, so basically just two. Um, the square, was it at that time called Timurai or Hine, or that came later, or you're not sure? Um, I think that was probably gifted about 1875 by the Maori community. Right. So it was Maori land that they um, were settling at the time, it wasn't sold off, yes, or it was? Yes, it was, it was part of the purchase of an entire block of land known as Ta'ahu Aturanga that uh, had been purchased in 1864 right. where Rangatani um, and other iwi who um, were by that point present, um, we're talking um, various hapu of um, Ngāti Raukawa, groups such as Ngāti Kauwhata, uh got together and discussed what they would do, whether or not they would sell to the government, which at that point was forcing land sales among Maori communities. And so they they sold the block and um, and then it took a little time for the government to survey and, and come up with a proposal. All oh, right. And also because I guess perhaps that the, the heavy timber <laughs> might have put was them a bit, off a bit. was a bit of a Daunting, yes. yes yeah, true. Um, <laughs> Right, so we've had suburbs and um, so the first European settler you mentioned, um, I forgot his name, but in, in Tōturanui, so he wasn't necessarily the first one. No, there were actually a couple of European settlers in this area in the 1860s, um, not so much in Palmerston North itself, and I think they actually first saw the clearing in 1846 and that was a guy called Stephen Hartley who uh, was a surveyor at the time. Uh, the first settlers probably came about 1868, um, specifically to the new settlement that was being laid out. Um, and when I say that, that's where you have 
even if it's just pegs in the ground, <laughs> it's pegs that mark boundaries of sections that you can legally buy. <laughs> Right, no, I guess um, Māori Among the first yeah. anyway were accommodation houses and pubs. <laughs> oh, right. I'm surprised. <laughs> so, um, okay, so European settlers and most of those were families or some, I guess, there would have been sole um, men in particular. There, I suspect there probably were a sort of group of men who came and prospected to see what the chances were in this new settlement and then they sent for the families. That that seems to have been a, um, a fairly a sort of common method. They checked it out, decided whether or not it was worth their time and effort, whether it was going to be a, a possibility. And then when they felt safe about that, then they felt safe to bring their wives and children. Right. I guess it would have still been a shock anyway for the wives and children. But Yes. Um, it came probably about 20, 30 years after settlement in other parts of New Zealand. So places like Wellington, Whanganui, um, Auckland, um, Dunedin, Christchurch had a fairly well-developed urban culture by then um, in which you had most of the services you needed, all the trades, um, good shops that sold fashion and the like. Um, so coming here would be moving away, really definitely pioneering. Being, definitely <laughs> Being prepared to be a pioneer. Right. So, and the first mayor? Uh, it's always considered to be George Snelson, All who right. came from the Midlands. Um, he was also had one of the first shops in the square. And um, was that called Snelson's or you not sure? It was definitely called Snelson's oh, right. store. <laughs> and, and I believe his wife had something to do quite prominently as well. I remember reading somewhere. So the Merrill um, position at that point was um, on a month, uh, year-by-year basis. So they re-elected every year. But I think that he, he was probably in for a f- about maybe 10 years of that. Um, an acknowledgement of um, the effort, I guess, that he and his wife had put in. So his wife was called Louise, his wife is Louisa Snelson, and she was also a go-getter. She was in the Anglican Church, as was George. Um, various other charitable committees. As she has a very fat scrapbook, which is kept by the um, Palmerston North City Archives, and you can go online and view it. Um, in um, their website called Manawatu Heritage. It's about 380 pages and it's stuffed full with um, invitations that she's been sent, um, newspaper clippings of events she's been to. It's her um, – gives you a good <laughs> indication of just how busy she kept herself. So would, would there have been um, sort of like um, nationwide – uh, you know, something in if there was such a thing as government house in those days, um, those sort of things as well, or were they just sort of local um, kind of events? Local. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it would have been a, a huge time to travel, et cetera, to get anywhere else. Um, yes. Without the train, you'd probably take a good day to get to Wellington if you went to Foxton and caught a boat on the same day, I would suspect. So it might be a two-day trip down to Wellington. Then you'd have to have somewhere to stay and all that sort of thing as well. So, yes, um, not as easy as it is today. <laughs> no, not at all. The railway made a vast difference. So when when did that come into effect? 
they pretty much as soon as they arrived, um, settlers started looking at ways to get out. <laughs> so the first the first route out was a tramway that they put in in the about 1871, 1873, ran through the bush along the line of what is now called Pioneer Highway, um, all the way out to what we would call Himatangi Corner, and then down to Foxton, along what of course would have been sand country, much easier there. So, But not long after that, they started putting a, um, a railway line through to Wanganui, and followed by one heading through the gorge in the 1880s, uh, completed about 1893 to get you through the gorge and connect up to go to Napier. And in the 1880s, they also started building a railway, the Wellington Manawatu Railway, from the Wellington end and heading north towards Palmerston North. And I think they got here about 1891. So it sort of would have been... um a tale of two halves or whatever you'd call it to get it right through so um, eventually you could go from Wellington through across to Napier or to um, Whanganui. That's one of the advantages of Palmerston North that's always been talked about. It's a transport hub um, and it has been from a fairly early time. So yes, you could go, you could travel from Wellington up to Palmerston North then head to Whanganui Taranaki or across to Hawke's Bay uh, and then eventually, of course, I think it was 1907, they finally made that connection and you have the railway running all the way through to Auckland. And unfortunately with the um, electrics at the moment, it, it, they have different gauges and things, so it's not necessarily easy to go from one to the other. <laughs> As in Australia, they have different gauges, I believe, so you can't go from one um, state, state to another, <laughs> yes. So that could be so right. So way back in the eighteen sixties or whatever, and eighteen up to eighteen ninety or whatever, they um, they managed to get a building their way out, out again. <laughs> right. um, <clears throat> and the other the other part as well as the railway going through the gorge, they also built a road. Oh right. So and and that's <coughs> where we've got. The, or had the two sides, the rail on one side, and the and uh, when you say road. <laughs> it's a technicality in the sense that it was about one lane right, uh, wide and if you met someone partway through, you'd have to back up. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it was it was just enough to be able to get a horse and cart through or to walk through on foot. And I guess at times it would have been all muddy and everything. And uh, Yes. <laughs> so, from, um, I can't imagine there were any less slips then than there were now. Yes, so it would have been a dangerous road, even more so, because I, be, I believe there is a um, memorial halfway through to all the people that uh, there are several that lost lives um, building the road. Yes, um, the story goes that they had to abseil people off the sides <laughs> to put the um, put the explosives in <laughs> and oh, to chip away. And that, that would be a very dangerous job. It'd be bad enough dealing with explosives anyway, but. Um, how do you get back up again if you've sailed down? There were a couple of other walking routes, though, as people do point out to me. All right. So, well, I would imagine there'd have to be because um, the yeah. Maori had um, had used various tracks across, and they also used to run a canoe service 
up and down through the gorge. Although there were complaints from some European settlers that it was a fairly fleecing operation. (laughs) (laughs) The price was fairly steep. (laughs) Well, if you want to go and want to get there somehow, needs is needs must, as they say. (laughs) That's fair enough. So, um, and then the the rail hub was um, right in the the area in in the centre of the. It started um, out started out in the square. Mm-hmm. Um, but not for long, um, and I th- by 1892 they had moved it to what we now call the railway land, which is three blocks that run from the square to Pitt Street, uh, Pitt to Cook, and Cook to West Street. Oh, right. And these were all where, because it was a railway hub, these were all the, where all the marshalling yards were, Um starting pretty much behind where the um, current city council building is now. Right, so it was quite a a huge um, area. From the looks of the pictures, um, there are at least eight or nine lines, tracks laid out there, wide, uh, and the marshalling areas were about two blocks, and then the last block had all the administration and the various um, workshops, repair places, um, sheds in which they put the trains, and that, and that, that at that time would have been steam trains. It would have been steam. It was a fairly sooty affair if you lived <laughs> on the on the other side of the street. You wouldn't want to put your washing out on that. It so, was yeah, it was pretty tough on the. Well, I, I don't know. Um, do you happen to know how how often trains would go? I sat down and worked it out for 1951 using a 1951 timetable and the first train came in at about four o'clock in the morning and that was the Auckland to Wellington Express for the down country on the um, you know what's called the main trunk line so people would be if you were getting off at Palmerston North you fell out at four o'clock in the morning (laughs) then at six it started up with the traffic by eight nine o'clock 10 o'clock, you had school trains coming in from places like Martin, bringing school children in to do their day at Palmerston North. Uh, You had regular trains going through all day, going out to all of the different um, areas. And the last one was a 10 o'clock train uh, going to Woodville with a rail car, which is is literally just uh, two carriages joined together, for those who don't know it, with a a, um, driver's cabin at each end. Oh, right. So that, um, oh, they used to call them the tin hares. <laughs> they were built in um, the 1950s and they were just like a sort of carriage with a little um, driver's cabin so that it was all in one and you could put 40, 50 people on without having to put an entire train on the front end. Oh, right. So, oh, okay. yes, they had a rail car that went across regularly every night to Woodville and it was like this every day. Uh, slightly quieter on, on the weekends, but anywhere from between 6 and 10 in the evening. All right. And so, of course, people would also fall out. They'd have 20 minutes for refreshment stops, uh, hence the roaring trade at the pubs directly <laughs> opposite, uh, or sometimes longer if they were um, connecting with trains heading um, in other directions. All right. And then eventually um, the rail was or the, the hub or whatever you like to call it, was shifted out of the centre? Is it was right? considered a major bottleneck um, for travel through the lower North Island. And that was as early as the 1930s. They started talking about 
moving it. And in preparation for that, they built a settlement, a railway settlement at Milson, which still exists. You can see the houses directly opposite. Um, uh, it's not Vogel Street, Ruahini Street. All oh, right. Um, shopping centre. But, of course, they didn't move the railway until 1963. So for over 30 years, railway workers would have to walk their way back into town by any means that they could get to their places of work. Uh, But they finally managed to build the diversion um, around the outside of the city in 63. And then depending on which sort of train you want to talk about, the last passenger train, I think, was 63 and the last freight was 64. And then All we right. were left with large number of rails to be taken <laughs> up and empty, empty land, and which I believe they buried as some of the some of the railway paraphernalia. I understand. So ah, the famous <laughs> one is the subway, um, which people wonder where it is and whether it has been blocked up and still exists as a subway in the centre. So whereabouts would that have been? Well, it was close to Tamanua. It was close to Pitt Street. Um, and I'm going to have to take an aerial photo and do some scale drawings. <laughs> it's possibly under the mound for the Globe Theatre. All right. So, but uh, and, and that was closed in the 60s, was it? That would have been closed in the 60s. All oh, right. There was no need. They put Pitt Street... Um, the section between Main and Church is actually a c- construction that was put in um, after the railway left. All oh, right. And the same with that section of Cook Street um, outside the fire station because, of course, the tracks went through at that point. There was nothing except um, a subway and a, and a footbridge. All oh, right. A rickety <laughs> footbridge that you had to cross at, put, at Cook Street. Oh, so you'd be quite um, perhaps worried that you, you um, <coughs> might fall down onto the lines or whatever. Yeah. Oh, people enjoyed looking down there, but other people, of course, cheated and uh, they couldn't be fagged walking either. <laughs> Just like people jaywalked today, people jaywalked across the tra- uh, across the um, railway lines and made a run for it. They weren't um, popular, of course, um, and it's amazing they didn't get hit by shunting engines, but, you know, there's always people who like to try it. The other aspect about that which um, people don't realise is just how casual um, the square was about the trains. Oh, right. (laughs) Um, First of all, people would quite often hop a train to go down to Terrace End instead of um, taking a bus. Oh, right. They could uh, see if there was a train heading in that direction. There was a little little, um, station, railway stop at Terrace End that you could get out at, roughly opposite Memorial Park. So was but, this sort of joyrided kind of thing? They just hopped on and didn't pay, or Oh, that'd speak to the you know if they knew the train driver, they'd say, "Could you um, just yeah. let me hop on and I'll get off at uh, whatever." But the other the other aspect to that, of course, I talked about how many trains went through, and there's roughly about two an hour went through, uh, but the square had absolutely no level crossings. Oh. It had bells, but no no um, no safety measures, no arms that came oh, down. Right. And so you always get, of course, some people who try to cheat and some people who didn't quite make it. Right, well, we've run out of time, Cindy, so we'll have to get you back for a second interview to talk. I found that really interesting, so I hope you have two listeners. So thank you, Cindy. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. 
For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.